for those who know every line, and for those finding Star Wars for the very first time, welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. Welcome to Growing Up Skywalker. My name is Anna. And I'm Sam. And we have reached a pivotal stage in the podcast. We have reached Sam's favorite show in the Star Wars canon, Rebels. I sure hope it was worth it, but let's talk about what we're doing. So we just are watching Spark of Rebellion Part 1 and 2, which is Episode 1 and 2 of Season 1 of Rebels. I think we should back up for just a second. Star Wars Rebels premiered in 2014. It is an animated show. It is not really in Clone Wars style, but it is 3D animated. It's like a slight evolution with some changes that were controversial at the time. So it must have come out during the late middle seasons of the Clone Wars? Yes. Yeah, uh, because Clone Wars started having some fits and starts at the end where there was a delay and then season six and then season seven occurred actually after it was filmed quote unquote, after the events or after Rebels. Okay. So this is a vibe shift. We begin begin Spark of Rebellion part one. And we had a whole episode at the end of Obi-Wan Kenobi about how we were saying goodbye to all of these characters, Mm -hmm. including Darth Vader. And then here we go. Bam. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. First scene of Star Wars Rebels. And we open on Vader himself. And he's talking to the Grand Inquisitor saying, the children of the forest are out and about causing havoc. Go hunt them down, as you've been doing for the last 14 years. So Vader sanctions more child murder. Mm -hmm. And that sets up kind of the initial tension of the show. Infanticide. (laughs) And then, ta-da, we meet Ezra. Ezra is a lovable scamp of the planet Lethal, and we meet him in the middle of a mischief. So he's about 12, 13 years old, I'd say. He looks more 14, 15 to okay. me. And he is super mischievous. There's some Imperials, some stormtroopers, some Imperial officers hassling a goat man selling Jogan fruit. The Coruscant callbacks are impeccable. And Ezra pretty much immediately begins to mischief the Imperials and give them the runaround and impersonate them and save the goat man and also fill his backpack with Jogan fruit. They're delicious. And then pretty immediately steps into a secondary and bigger mischief. The Imperials are all protecting some crates in the middle of a square, and there's a crew of grown-ups who are interested <laughs> in lightening the load. <laughs> so we meet Kanan, Zeb, and Sabine, and they are all making fools out of these Imperials and stealing their cargo. But then Ezra comes along and makes fools out of them. This all culminates in a high-speed chase down the highway of Lothal, which is delightful because Lothal is this pastoral planet. This highway is like a space highway outside Lincoln, Nebraska. It's beautiful. Yeah, and Ezra and Kanan, who's the dad-looking one, they end up with a whole squad of TIE fighters after them. And then finally, Ezra is stuck in this cornfield, and he's about to get aced by TIE fighters, but then Kanan pulls up in his ship— It's called The Ghost, and Ezra launches himself and the one crate of cargo that he managed to steal aboard. And it is there on board The Ghost that we reacquaint ourselves with Hera Syndulla and Chopper. The droid. The droid. Hera the pilot, Chopper the droid. As a reminder, dear listeners, we met them in Bad Batch. They're all grown up. And living their dreams, they are the pilots of the ghost, and Hera is good enough at her job that she can get hot goss and evade TIE fighters at the same time. It filled my cup. Uh, Hera gets them safely to hyperspace, but the Empire is not about to let this go. 
Agent Callis of the Imperial Security Bureau. Agent Callis, ISB. I'm doing the Italian fingers over (laughs) here. He comes flying in and he is concerned that all of these one-off attacks could be, da-da-da, the spark of rebellion. And it kind of seems like it is. Hera scrambles the ghost's signature and they land right back on Lethal, where they head to Tarkin Town. It's a refugee camp full of people, the Empire displaced, and the crew of the ghost unloads all of this food and these blasters. So they basically run jobs against the Empire. And they get a juicy piece of intel for the next job. They get coordinates to intercept a ship full of Wookiee prisoners. This is a job they've been wanting to do for a long time. They get those from Sicatro Visago, who is a lowlife scum who's dealing in weapons with them. Just an eminently untrustworthy name. Mm -hmm. If I learned anything from the Bad Batch, it's that if someone's name is like Sligu Visago, Mm -hmm. do not trust. Vowels are good. Consonants are bad. (laughs) Star Wars rules. Zs are very bad. (laughs) Unless it's Ezra. Because Ezra's great. Ezra does eavesdrop on this job so they can't drop him off back home. He knows too much. And also, he found a lightsaber. So he has been this whole time having these moments of, like, weirdness where he, like, the music changes and he looks up and there's Kanan. And this time he's in the ghost and he's wandering around. He walks into Kanan's room, finds the secret panel because he's a thief, and then In the secret panel, he finds two things, a holocron and a lightsaber. It turns out this is a setup. Hera and Kanan want to know if he's force sensitive because they are so smart and so (laughs) perfect. And I just love them. Unfortunately, the job itself is also a setup. As soon as Kanan, Sabine, and Zeb get on board of the Imperial transport ship where they think the Wookiee prisoners are... A Star Destroyer drops out of hyperspace, and the comms are jammed, so Ezra has to go on board to warn them. And that is the end of part one. Ta-da! Ta-da! What happens in part two? So we start off part two, and it's Hera and Ezra in the cockpit. And Hera's like, hey, we're the good guys. You should be a good guy. And Ezra's like, but I don't want to be a good guy. But he actually does. So he runs into the Gazanti class that's being – that the – rest of the crew is about to blow up at the brig, which is full of stormtroopers and yelling, it's a trap. It's a trap. It is in fact a trap. They're being boarded by a star destroyer. They're running, they're running. They're about to make the door when Callus grabs Ezra and Zeb, who's been giving Ezra a hard time the whole time is like, Oh no, sorry kid. And then he starts feeling really bad about it, but Ezra gets left behind. Okay. Zeb does push him. He And then Ezra gets snatched. So let's not let's not forget to implicate Zeb in all of this. So on the ghost, they're like, hey, great job. The kid did good. The kid did all right. Where is the kid? And Zeb's like, uh, he didn't (laughs) make it. And they're like, Garrison which is his full name. Uh, so they have to take votes whether or not to go rescue him. And before we get to the results of the vote, we cut to Ezra in the Star Destroyer being captured callus is like i know you don't know anything you're a kid however the rebels are going to come back and rescue you and he's like bro i just started working with them this morning like i'm not like part of their crew people aren't nice they don't like me yet (laughs) but also ezra being a medium to high level rogue gets his way out of his cell he yells at people he grabs a helmet he hears where the wookie prisoners are actually being brought And he hears that rebels are attacking the lower hangar bay, and he redirects all the guards to the upper hangar bay to mess with them. Clever. So as the rest of the specters, which is what the ghost's crew call themselves, are bursting in, Ezra's like, what's up? I'm here. I have rescued myself. They get aboard the ghost. They run away. Callus is almost sucked into space by one of Sabine's art bombs. It's fantastic. That getaway is so clean. And they make it to Kessel, which is where the Wookiees are. But Callus is given the helmet that Ezra was using. And a stormtrooper is like, one of the rebels was using this. And Callus has this moment of realization. He's like, if they heard what we were talking about, they know what we were talking about. So they go to Kessel, hot landing, just like 
saving private ryan style boarding party as the specters burst out onto this landing pad and start taking out stormtroopers they rescue a huge pile of wookies and they're blocked in because a bunch of tie fighters and callus show up and chase the ghost off so the specters heard all of the wookies inside a shipping container which the ghost can pick up later but one of the little kids the little Baby freaking Wookiee, Gunji sized, has been chased off in the opposite direction. He is pint size. He is half the size of Gunji. So as the ghost is flying around, everyone's being chased. Kanan calls in, Hera, I want to do a 22 pickup. And Ezra's like, what's a 22 pickup? This is all a surprise to me. And Kanan says, kid, I'm about to let everyone in on a surprise. He puts together the lightsaber starts dodging blaster bolts and walking towards the stormtroopers. Everything stops. A whole bunch of stormtroopers crap their pants. And Callus <laughs> says, everyone, fire on the Jedi. Ooh. This, of course, does not deter Kanan because <laughs> he's a Jedi. He's defending himself. Everyone's getting loaded. But Ezra has run off to rescue the baby Wookiee. Callus and a stormtrooper also are following him. So Ezra force jumps over and, uh, you know, laser slingshots a stormtrooper into the hurtling abyss, grabs the Wookiee, but Callus is right behind him and says, of course you'd be a Jedi. And there's always two, a master and apprentice. And Ezra says, not me. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm alone. I'm literally level five rogue. I'm alone. The ghost pulls up alongside the gantry. Kanan is riding on top of it and says, not this time. He shoves Callus off the gantry and rescues Ezra. Callus does, in fact, manage to save himself and climb back aboard the gantry after booting a stormtrooper to his death and escapes. So everyone lives. They're going back to Lothal. They drop off Ezra. Ezra does another sleight of hand and manages to steal the lightsaber. <laughs> he's he's really quite good at that. And he goes back to his little hut, which is great because it's like a, a, it's the space needle from Seattle in the middle he's of the He's got this like slick loft in an old comms tower. And I'm like, wait, but that's my dream. Yeah, it's really delightful, except for the commute. You know, it's 900 ladder steps. Well, but Sam, and the loneliness. The loneliness. Turns out this is all a fake out. Because Kanan does know where his lightsaber is. And Ezra is sitting there like, what's the force? As he looks at his wall of stormtrooper helmets and he's holding this lightsaber. And Kanan says, the force, bind-, he sneaks up behind him and says, the force is everything. It binds us. It binds the universe together. If you want to keep that lightsaber and stay here and add it to your pile of relics, you can. Or you can give it back and I can teach you the ways of the Force. And Ezra votes thumbs up for not being a lonely, misanthropic teen thief. Mm -hmm. And he goes with his new family. But we bookend the episode with Callus calling the Grand Inquisitor. And Callus says... I came across a rebel cell. One of them made good use of a lightsaber. And the Grand Inquisitor says, you were wise to call me. And that's the beginning. That is the spark of rebellion. Wow. Ta-da. This show is so silly. (laughs) And I love it. It's great. It definitely... uh, You know, the first episode of anything has, especially if they're like, we don't know how many seasons we're doing. Like the first episode of Kenobi, they had the whole thing charted out. But this is more like the first episode of Clone Wars or the first episode of Bad Batch where they're like, yeah, we're going to make some seasons. We're going to tell a story. We're going to see how we get. It's a little clunky to me in retrospect, but it's amazing how rewatchable this show is. As soon as Disney Plus was auto-playing and queuing up episode three, I was like, oh yeah, I definitely want to sit here and watch episode three. I cannot because that is not in the spirit of the show. But what I thought was interesting was that in 2014, this actually premiered as a movie. So -hmm. there was no artificial break between part one and part two, which is interesting because I thought that part one was really gorgeously paced and really seamless and really smooth. And then part two was kind of clunky. 
I can see that. It bounced around a fair bit as far as places to go. It did that thing that the Clone Wars did Mm -hmm. when it was still muddling through the early seasons where they had so many great ideas and it was too many things to pack into 22 minutes. And so you're just flashing from action scene to action scene and just scrambling to keep up. Whereas I thought part one was really easy to follow. I agree. We also had to really set two different stages. And so in part one, we're setting who the specters are, what they're all about. And so everyone has a number that they refer to themselves during ops and they have matching uniforms, which is really cute. I didn't pick up on any of that. So Kanan calls himself Spectre 1 and Hera Spectre 2. Aww. um, So they all have little code names that they refer to each other as. And they had like in the opening scene where we see them, they're like walking next to each other in the streets and tapping like things like like they tap their thigh to yeah. show that they're ready for this ambush. So they like really know how to operate. They have a code language. They do. And we needed to see like how efficient they are because they go in and the way this ambush goes off is there's like a bunch of Imperials standing around. Uh, Sabine, who is difficult to hide in a crowd because... She, Let's describe her. Sabine wears Mandalorian armor that is graffitied to the nines. She is fantastic, but she is bright pink and black and orange, just every single color. She is deeply a 2014 Tumblr girl. She has the checkered Vans pattern on her shoulder pauldron. Yes. She is the moment. And by the (laughs) moment, I mean 2014. (laughs) But she walks up and she flings a grenade into this crowd and then walks away into this crowd of Imperials and walks away. The grenade goes off. They realize they're under an ambush and they charge down a different alleyway where Kanan is right there with a car and blocks off the alleyway and starts shooting. They go a different direction. And Zeb, because Zeb is a giant eight foot tall purple monster, just starts clobbering stormtroopers. He has the muscles. He is like, yeah, at one point he Fireman carries a Wookiee over one shoulder like it's nothing. Yeah, well, how much can a Wookiee weigh? 500 pounds? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, interestingly enough, Zeb is actually based off of the original Ralph McQuarrie art for what a Wookiee would look like. (gasps) That makes that moment when they try to pass him off as a rare hairless Wookiee so delicious. Yeah, yeah. That's like their scene for trying to initially meet up with these Wookiees is they're they're doing that. And then they just don't because every one of them has their own skill set. And they're still they're working as a team, but they're not used to having Ezra yet. They don't have like a thief, you know? So the show starts us off on this tone that I really appreciated, which is here you've got this incredibly competent band of miscreants, mm-hmm. which is the Spectres? Yeah. I was calling them the Ghost Crew. I guess Spectres is fine too. Yeah. And then you have Ezra, who is also incredibly competent at what he does. And the show starts us off in this tone where everybody is impressed by everybody. Yeah. And I really love that because it's not like the early seasons of Bad Batch where Omega hasn't really leveled up yet. Mm -hmm. Ezra is immediately very good at what he does and appreciates how good the Spectres are and vice versa. So they're on a really equal footing. There's a great scene as they're on speeder bikes driving down the highway. And this is one of the better speeder bike chases we've seen. It was very good. So uh, the TIE fighter comes by or no, the bad guys behind them shoot a crate and it messes with Ezra's steering and he jumps into oncoming traffic. Then later on, once they're out in out of the city, Kenan just jumps his speeder bike into oncoming traffic and they're <laughs> like chasing each other. They have like this really cool hand gestures and they're all making it work. It's very fun, but the uh, just watching like what Ezra can do by accident and Kanan does because he's a secret Jedi is very cool. That's why I think they're able to come together because Kanan's like, this kid actually is good at this and we can use him. Yeah, it's fun with the knowledge, even thinking back on this by the end of episode two of Mm -hmm. season one, where you do get the Master Padawan vibe a little bit where 
Ezra, the quote-unquote Padawan, goes herring off, and then Kanan, the master, has to do the same thing, but slightly more elegantly to keep up. Yeah. And there's this cute dialogue, the whole speeder chase, where where Kanan keeps going like, who is that kid? And then Ezra keeps going like, who are these guys? Yeah. It's very fun. That speeder chase has so many delightful moments about who the characters are. Uh, We learn that Zeb is just like grouchy all the time. Sabine actually catches Ezra and then she's like, if he catches you, you're in trouble. And then she's like riding on these crates that he's towing and she shoots the one of the crates off and gives him a good <laughs> a <little> luck. <laughs> <laughs> that's the most fun because that's that's Sabine right there. That's I like love how, moments. how unbothered she is. She is eminently unbothered and she's so mischievous. Every time they do something, she brings spray paint and explosives and spray paints and mines the place. <laughs> Like, this happens twice. What a skill set. She just <laughs> destroys things. She does. Artistically. Artistically. Wow. That's her style. She's the, you know, wooiest Mandalorian. So she's just like, huh, artistic explosions. <laughs> so then we also have Hera. So when this came out, this was the first time we met Hera. Oh, okay, okay, okay. And then, but the fact that she's Hera Syndulla is important because recall, she is Chamsundul's daughter. Oh, you don't have to remind <laughs> me. I wept little baby tears at one point thinking about Hera being Chamsundul's daughter. So we can talk about that at some point if you want to. I like the introduction of Hera and Chopper in this. Seeing them as kids was fun because they're just absolutely mischievous. But watching Hera in the opening scene, Flying the Ghost, which is as another callback to uh, Solo, it's a VCX-100, which is the ship that Han says he has when he's bluffing oh, to win the Millennium fun. Falcon. So it's a very fun, sexy ship. It's big. It's chonky. It doesn't look anything like the Millennium Falcon, but it's still obviously a Star Wars mess around ship, which I really appreciate. I will say one of the strengths of the chronological watch through that we're doing, the in-universe chronological Mm -hmm. watch through, and the time that we started means that we got to meet Hera and Chopper when they were like, what, 12? Something like that, yeah. Something like that. And Hera's biggest dream in the whole world is to be a pilot, but no one has ever let her fly. Yeah. So the first time she gets to fly is with the Bad Batch and Omega. Mm-hmm. And she's like, all right, okay, I could get the hang of this. And then launch forward, what, 10 years? Something like that. This is taking place, let's see here, 16 years after Order 66. So launch forward 16 years. Yeah. Maybe 15. Yeah. And she is eminently a capital P pilot. Yes. They're flying. They're being chased by TIE fighters. And she's just like giving them the runaround. These TIE fighters cannot touch her. And she's just like, all right, tell me about this kid. Yeah, she's hanging out. (laughs) She's hanging out with her husband. She's like, give me the goss. You're my best friend. Mm -hmm. I want to hear all about it. Hang on. I just got to do a barrel roll. Mm -hmm. Okay. Give me the goss. (laughs) And he jokes like she does a barrel roll to put him into a seat so that he has to sit down and talk to her. I didn't care that yeah. amazing i will say question i said question mark husband mm-hmm. she and kanan are ambiguous married? ambiguous yeah they call each other love there's definitely so this is a kid's show it's very chaste as far as romantic interludes it's go. like i love lucy where they have separate beds yeah yeah, and I mean, we see that because Ezra goes into what is presumably Kanan's bunk. Oh, there were no identifying features. No one had pictures on the wall or anything. And to be fair, it's like they're still setting up the sets, you know, the electronic sets. But yeah, there is another funny moment of romantic interlude after Ezra. Oh, gosh, what is he doing? Okay, the first time he is captured, they throw him in like a a brig, a uh, makeshift brig. It's like a cabinet, and he escapes <laughs> into the the air conditioning system. They tried to Harry Potter him and put him in the cupboard under the stairs, yeah. but he is too slippery. So he's escaping through the ship. Everyone finds this hilarious except for, like, Zeb. And then they're being attacked by TIE fighters, and he is, like, in the gun in the back of the ship. Yes, yeah, like, so Zeb and Sabine have to hop on the tail guns. And Sabine jumps in 
next to him and for the first time takes off her helmet. With her long, flowing e-girl, you know, highlighted locks. And Ezra's like, wah! <laughs> and she's like, ugh. <laughs> I mean, her eyes are like shimmering in that scene. She does look like the most beautiful girl in the world. Mm-hmm. So I get it. Me too, Ezra. But he's like, I'm Ezra. What's your name? And she's like, uh, <laughs> I have to kill TIE fighters now. It's so good. Because she's what, 17? Yeah, she's like a few years older than him. And having lived through life as a all, all the years of a teenage male, uh, non-consensually, honestly. Um, <laughs> I would never wish the violence of that on it's, anyone. It's rough. You know what's only slightly worse than being a teenage male? Being a teenage girl. Well, okay. But here's where those two Venn diagrams meet and match. <laughs> It's been you're like 14 and there's like a cute 17-year-old girl. Yep. Like the yep. the vibes of being a high school boy with a crush on a slightly older high school girl, that's soul crushing. Let's take gender out of it. <laughs> being a 14-year-old with a crush on a cool, awesome, hot 17-year-old is the worst feeling <laughs> in the world. Just don't oh, do it, kids. Just put a dagger through my heart. Yeah, seriously. Like Romeo and Juliet, that. That crap. So. I feel that. Mm-hmm. So it is chased. Uh, it's really never resolved what their situation is. And I don't especially think that it on. needs to be. Mm-hmm. Because you immediately get the sense that they are together. Yeah. That they are the mom and dad of this crew. Hera does this cute, cute, cute thing. So Hera and Kanan have set up Ezra to find the lightsaber and the holocron Mm because they want to test him. And he thinks he's being so sneaky and he dips out of there with his stolen goods and Hera just puts her hand on her hip and looks at Kanan and she goes, now we'll know. And like my mom did that. My Mm -hmm. mom does that. She puts her hand on her hip and she's like, all right, we'll see if my parenting paid off. (laughs) And I'm like, yes, young mom and cool dad energy. Hera is also very much a moral cornerstone of this group because she is always wanting to do the right thing. She pushes the crew to like for votes on who's going to save Ezra. And it comes down to Kanan has to make the deciding vote. It's two against and two for. But it's like a she has this. Of course, I'm going to do the right thing. I've been always doing the right thing. I was a freedom fighter before I was born. I think actually the more interesting moments of that came when she was talking with Ezra at the very end of part one, going into the very beginning of part Mm -hmm. two. And she's like, the comms are down. You have to go and warn the specters that this is a trap. And Ezra's like, why would I do that? I have absolutely no allegiance to these guys. Mm -hmm. And she looks at him and she says, if all you do is fight for your own life, your life is worth nothing. And I was sitting there like, tell me you were raised by Cham Sindola and Gobi Glee without telling me <laughs> you were raised by Cham Sindola and Gobi Glee. She is a freedom fighter to her core. Absolutely. And this is how she does it, which is, it's such a great setting too. Like they just mess around on Lothal. They change their scanning systems that they always look like a different ship. And she's just sitting here fighting a one woman crusade against the empire with a crew of misfits. So yeah, maybe we'll zoom out from characters and talk about some of the bigger themes and bigger questions that Rebels has presented us. biggest theme that I think is really important and it's uh, lampshaded in very early is the empire is here. They're here to stay. They're everywhere. They're enslaving people. They're hassling people. They're putting them aside for treason and they're putting all the people who are undesirable in Tarkin towns. And this is like it's almost over the top of how bad the empire is. And also how like comically foolish they are. There's these two, there's a, a fat and a skinny uh, Imperial officer who are like chasing them around the whole time. And they're just very goofy. But the Empire is now very much here in a way that I don't 
feel like they even were in Kenobi. Because in Kenobi, there's a scene early on where they say, hey, this is the Outer Rim. You don't, the Empire doesn't exist here. And the Inquisitors are like, look, I exist where my lightsaber exists. But Lethal, also in the Outer Rim, it's it's the Outer Rim, but the Empire is everywhere. And that's, uh, I think the idea of what the Spectres are doing versus the Empire and how they have just no qualms whatsoever about hitting the Empire is a really interesting one. Yeah, I had also wanted to talk about the Empire, and I wanted to come at it a little bit sideways from that, because I kind of wanted to talk about how the opening tension of Rebels is about child murder, yeah, and how the Empire sanctions child murder. So, you know, I hear, I, I have thoughts on child murder. <laughs> I think most of us do. But my thought went to the fact that this is a kid show, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I hear adults fretting about children consuming media where, like, children die, and they get really worried about that. And I'm not worried about that because I consumed plenty of age-inappropriate media growing up, and I'm fine. Perfectly fine. Perfectly fine. What I am interested in is getting another piece of the puzzle as to why the Empire is terrible. Because I like seeing that fleshed out, right? Mm-hmm. I like being able to point at the empire and say, aha, they steal fruit from old men and they murder children and there are refugee camps and they are just hassling the good people of the galaxy. Mm -hmm. They're the baddies because it makes it more satisfying to see the crew of the ghost winning their little victories and taking their little nips out of the empire's hide. Yeah, definitely. There's... I mean, it's it's almost overwrought here how bad the Empire is, but I think it's a good framing device, particularly for the opener of the show, to be like, we are looking for children like Ezra Bridger. Kanan's been hiding this whole time. He's not a famous Jedi. He's been he's pretty good at hiding, but now he has to activate himself in this moment. And this might be the first time he's actually used his lightsaber and left survivors in a long time. Wow. And so obviously the whole weight of the Inquisitorius is going to come on him. But the way Vader is thinking here is that if I can have kids, maybe some other Jedi who went to ground could as well. If you stop being a Jedi, then having kids is no problem. Having these attachments, that'll let you hide. And that leads to not just the children of the Jedi, but like the children of the Force, a whole nother generation of Force sensitives out of nowhere. Because like if Ahsoka or Anakin had been born 15 years later, they'd be right here right now. Well, so it sets up that what Vader wants to do is incredibly futile. It's it's cruel and it's overwrought and it's also a bad plan. Because as we know from Tales of the Jedi, Force-sensitive children can be born to anybody. Ahsoka came out of nowhere in her little Tegruton village, and they had to go to the wise woman, the elder wise woman, and say, what is going on with Ahsoka? And she says, she is a force user. She will go to the Jedi. Mm -hmm. But it's a rare enough thing that it's not that Ahsoka had Jedi parents. She sprang from the force, right? So what Vader is setting up the Inquisitors to do is scour the entire galaxy for force-sensitive children forever. And it was kill or capture. And I think the capturing is an important part for two reasons. One is to fall into Dr. Hemlock and Palpatine PhD's nefarious plans for using force <laughs> bodies for whatever purposes. The deep underground research center for force sensitives. Yes, exactly. Mwahaha. <laughs> Evil <laughs> laughter here. And also, uh, Vader would love to have more Inquisitors because they work directly for him. And so that's him expanding his power base. If he gets down to like 47th sister, he's like, heck yeah. I have an army of force users. I think it's supposed to impress on us how many resources the Empire has just to throw at special projects, mm-hmm. like scouring the galaxy to track down maybe five needles in a galactic haystack. Now, on the flip side of that, being blessed with foresight 
Palpatine may have seen that even one Jedi could bring about his downfall. Mm. And having been a Jedi for quite some time, Anakin's like, yeah, I've seen Jedi do some pretty incredible stuff. Like a Jedi at the head of an army makes that army unshakable, unbreakable. I would also presume, and I'm going back to this because Obi-Wan's holocron is a canonical part of this episode. So Obi-Wan at the end of Revenge of the Sith had recorded this holocron and set it to broadcast from the Jedi Temple saying, don't come back. The Republic has fallen. The Jedi Order has crumbled. Go out. May the Force be with you and trust Mm -hmm. in the Force. But he also says... In time, a new hope will arise. And I would presume that Palpatine has heard this because it's being broadcast across the entire galaxy. Mm -hmm. And he might be thinking that Kenobi had a force vision, a premonition. And so Palpatine might be thinking the only way a new hope could arise is with a new Jedi, a force user. What's great about that is how often the prophecy of like oh a people from the western tribe will kill the king and so the king goes and kills everyone from the western tribe but then there's one survivor who kills them out of revenge like that's such a a fun old school story that that is one of those like that falls neatly into a whole box of self-fulfilling prophecies yeah if palpatine foresees that his end will come at the hands of a jedi then he's like i'll kill all the jedi and then like the Jedi were protecting him up until he decided to kill them all. <laughs> it's on you, buddy. I think that tracks so nicely because Star Wars loves history. Mm-hmm. Some of the trivia for just even the very basic premises of Rebels are that the Star Wars writers went back to some of the established tropes that Star Wars writers have been doing for decades. They name a lot of male care a lot of main characters after biblical characters. Yeah. Kanan and that's why and we have Kanan and Ezra. And it also tracks to me that Star Wars will always go back to Greek mythology too, because Star Wars loves the tragedy. And the tragedy is a very Greek literature trope. Yeah. And so that zooms out even a little bit more. So we started with characters, we've moved to themes. I want to talk about like Rebels as a series. As Ooh, a show. okay. Yes. So this show came out after Clone Wars, before Clone Wars season seven, and before the sequel trilogy. Yes. So this is right in the mess of the Disney acquisition. And okay, so Pablo okay. Hidalgo came in and had to decanonize and recanonize all sorts of things. What year did he do that? 2015. Okay, fascinating. So that's right during this time frame that Disney is buying everything. And so Dave Filoni of The Clone Wars is like, okay, what is my vision for a show that takes place? Because Disney has already bought out everything after Return of the Jedi in terms of time. And so now I'm telling a story, or they will. And so I'm telling a story of known things. What happens between Revenge of the Sith and A New Hope? And this is that. This is the first TV series to enter into that ground. So we also get movies. We get uh, we added Rogue One. We added Solo. We added Kenobi. We added Bad Batch. Basically in that order, which is very silly. But um, <laughs> Just going backwards. But Rebels has been here the whole time as the story in between. And we know just the zeitgeist from the 70s is that by the time the original trilogy comes around, there's not a lot of Jedi to hang out. And so if we have Jedi who are already part of the re- like a rebellion, what does that even mean? Like, what is their story going to be? It gives Filoni a ton of room to wiggle as far as these characters. He's like, I can do just about anything with these characters. And that's something he didn't have in the Clone Wars because he's like, okay, well, I can tell all the stories I want about Anakin's character growth, but Anakin does actually have to become Darth Vader. There are some ironclad pieces. Padme has to die. Uh, Anakin has to turn. Palpatine has to live. Obi-Wan has to disappear. Yeah. And then we can make a whole new show like this with other characters. And I think that's a really cool success in the storytelling, just as part of the framing of it. By making a whole new set of characters, you're making the universe a larger place. And with these tiny callbacks to Obi-Wan, 
telling his Order 66 message. And this is the softest Order 66 in any series. Oh, my gosh. It's not even really there. I didn't. I hardly cried at all. And, <laughs> and it, it it's like that's the thread that binds it to the movies. Otherwise, it is Rebels, a Star Wars story. But what's fun is that Rebels coming before all of this other filled in media gave me a lot of respect for the other needles that were being threaded. So we just came hot off the heels of Obi-Wan Kenobi, Mm -hmm. where now I have a lot of respect for the fact that the writers were even willing to work with Inquisitors and kill off, quote unquote, the Grand Inquisitor, because the opening shot of Rebels establishes that he lived. So it was very daring of them to even touch that piece of star wars to touch that motif or that that piece of canon that piece of canon so to uh inform you because those of us who watched them in the release order uh killing off the grand inquisitor was such a piece of uncooked meat for the fanboy audience (laughs) Because what does that mean? Like Rami, they descended on it they like de- wolves. They descended on it like rabid hyenas because the Grand Inquisitor in Kenobi is played by a human in makeup. And the Grand Inquisitor in Rebels is a deep, deep alien. Yeah, he looks like Count Dracula. He does. And to be fair, no, like Anakin in the Clone Wars doesn't look like Anakin, like Hayden Christensen. Uh, Count Dooku in the Clone Wars does not look like Christopher Lee. Are you kidding me? I mean, Count Dooku. Count in the Dooku Clone Wars, was flawlessly rendered. Flawlessly rendered. Take his name out of your mouth. He's he's two feet of nose and four inches, two inches of forehead. <laughs> he's got he's got the profile. He's got he's built like a statue of a hawk. But um, <laughs> so when the Grand Inquisitor showed up in Kenobi, a whole bunch of people were like, "Oh, his characterization is terrible." And then he's he dies. They're like, "Oh my gosh." Is Disney finally going to kill off Rebels, which we hate because it's a kid's show and there's women. And it's like, okay, chill out. What? So those of us who, like, obviously they're going to thread canon and they're going to keep things canon because they spent billions of dollars on this IP. So they kept the Grand Inquisitor alive. And so obviously the Grand Inquisitor is alive the whole time. And we didn't talk about that much in Kenobi because I kind of like spoiled it for you. But well, I also didn't have any frame of reference. I was like, oh man, the Grand Inquisitor's dead. Yahoo. And then I was like, oh man, the Grand Inquisitor's back. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I get to Revels two days later. And I'm like, oh, okay, wow. That was a that was a decision that they made. Yeah, to keep him alive for at least a few more years to make him this interesting character. It's uh yeah, it was really deftly threaded having particularly how in Kenobi, the Empire is everywhere, but they're not fully everywhere. And in the Rebels, the Empire is absolutely everywhere. Yeah, they are ruling with an iron fist. So we get context clues even that Lothal is out in the Outer Rim. Governor Tarkin mm-hmm. is governor of the Outer Rim. And even in Kenobi, we had gotten pieces of dialogue saying, well, the Empire's around, but they can't do much about the Outer Rim. Yeah. And here we have canonical proof that they are an oppressive force everywhere. And going back to Bad Batch, it's like they're fleeing as fast as they can to the Outer Rim. They start off in the Inner Rim, and then they move out, and they move out, and they move out. And that's like what the Bad Batch is doing. So the Empire has expanded. So because we're talking about Rebels as a whole, Rebels as it came mm-hmm. out, I've I've got a ton of questions for you. First... I'll, I'll answer what I can without spoilers. This was just the pilot. Yeah, no worries. Okay. First... I always want to know about the critical reception at the time of release, and I always want to know if that has changed over time. So how did people receive Rebels when it came out? It was popular. It was a kid's show, and it came out on this service called Disney XD, I believe. Hmm. So this is like pre-streaming, right? Because it's 2014, and there was still like cable television. I mean... The pandemic changed the media landscape in such a profound way. It's it's rather delightful. Although with mergers and everything, we're going to be back on one one streaming service probably within five years. But at the time, people were like, it's great. It's a kid's show. 
it's a continuation of Clone Wars, which was also a kid's show. It actually kind of, I say, this is my thesis statement for a lot of things. The prequels were hated when they came out by the rabid fan base. The Clone Wars rehabilitated the prequels. The Rebels is going to rehabilitate the entire idea of an animated show for the Rebel, the Star Wars universe, despite being a kid's show, because the themes it deals with are so meaningful for what a Star Wars story can be. Whoa. Yeah. But to this day, Rebels is the dividing line between a... Okay, let's see here. You've got like casual fans of Star Wars who just watch the movies and maybe like Mando. And then you've got like intuit fans who watch like mando and the shows and maybe some clone wars like me yeah and probably kenobi and probably andor like live action stuff and movies and maybe have dipped a toe into the animated shows yes i would say that's a medium medium rare fan serious fans have watched rebels and love it because it is delightful so the the serious fans really love rebels and these reasons will be self-evident but I don't think it's ever gotten as much traction as even the Clone Wars, which is a bummer because it's great. It is great. It's fun to hear you call this a kid's show because <laughs> it's more fun to hear people describe Clone Wars as a kid's show because it is just, yes, it can be watched by children, but there's a lot going on, right? And I think I like watching Rebels, even though it's a quote unquote kid show, because I'm at the age now where I look at media that can be consumed by children differently. Mm-hmm. I think what, like, this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think Western media is obsessed with policing the tone and content specifically of children's media mm-hmm. because we are deeply worried about what messages we are embedding into children and what core memories they're going to form around that media. Mm-hmm. But I'm not concerned about that because I don't care and I have no children. I'm interested in how I perceive kid shows. And now I'm at the age where I'm no longer watching the young kid or tween or teen main character and saying, wow, I want to be them. I'm looking at the adults in the show and saying, wow, that's how I could be living my life? Yeah. Like, I could be running jobs against the Empire and rescuing Wookiee prisoners? You could be. I could be feeding hungry refugees? Yeah. I could be taking in dangerous but lovable street urchins? (laughs) Could be. What? Yeah. Who was going to tell me these were options? (laughs) This is what I could be doing with my life. Could be. Could Hera be. appears to be roughly the same age as me. Mm-hmm. And just running around causing a ruckus. Just when the law is unjust, it is not worth following. And so she sees all these things. She says, we're definitely going to rescue these Wookiees. We're definitely going to rescue Ezra. Ezra, you definitely need to go back and rescue the Spectres. There's no question of what the right thing to do is. She has been pushed to that that moment. And we talked about it with Tala in Kenobi. We talked about it with the Guerrera siblings. We talked about it with Ahsoka of like, no matter what's going on, if you are someone who is willing to do the right thing, you're a hero. I think that's delightful because I'm interested now in good adult representation in media for young children because Mm, it's instructional for me. Yeah, that's a funny thing about Bad Batch, which came out, gosh, (laughs) like a half generation after this, you know, it was like seven years afterwards is a good amount of time. And the Bad Batch were like, ah, yes, a whole crew of dads raise a daughter. Like that's the (laughs) the premise of the show. It's very silly. It's not. It's beautiful. A bunch of like PTSD riddled veteran dads who have no other understanding of how to live their lives raise a daughter. Well, (laughs) it gives credence to that super old adage, which is it takes a village, right? Because none of the Bad Batch are capable of raising a daughter on their own. But together in community, they can raise a hell of a daughter. And so I think that is in conversation with this other family that we're now already getting in Rebels. And I'm only calling it a family because Sabine called them a family. Yes. I don't want to put that framing on 
rebels from nowhere, but it's part of the text. They are a family. And yeah. so now we're seeing just a different way, a different community operating just a little differently. Yeah, it's a family, but it's also a adventuring party. Yeah. And you very much see, like, if you were to make their little characters, what they spend their points on. You know, like the fact that Zeb is able to just power slam uh, stormtroopers and Hera's the perfect ace pilot. Like, they're they're an adventuring party who's also a family. And I think that's a, a incredibly strong bond. We will definitely explore everyone's histories and backstories and how they joined as we move on. There is just one more question that I had since we're talking about Rebels being a kid show and what that means. And I know Rebels came out before Kenobi. Mm -hmm. However, I have now watched it in in in-universe chronology. And so I'm thinking really hard about how these pieces of media are in conversation with each other. Because in Star Wars chronology, they're happening at similar times, Mm -hmm. right? So my big question before we get to Baywatch, do you think... The tone shift of Rebels from Kenobi minimizes or somehow invalidates how scary it is to be a Jedi in the time of the Empire? I think that's a really, really good question. One of the complaints for Rebels is that it is too bright. It is too light as far as tone. And it is probably, other than Resistance, the lightest work of Star Wars media thus far. Hmm. It's very fun and friendly and the consequences, although serious, like, I mean, gosh, Ezra got captured, explosions ensued, everyone almost died, like, and that's still not that scary. It's got sort of a season two, season three of the Clone Wars vibe. Yeah. And what has happened since then, since 2014, has been the whole world has gotten a lot darker in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, The media environment from like 2016 through like 2022 was incredibly dark for so many things. And that darkness permeated into media. Um, Andor, which we're watching, uh, the plan here is we're going to watch season one of Andor in between seasons one and two of Rebels because that's about where it fits is like way, way dark Mm -hmm. because it was filmed during the pandemic. Mm. And like in 2014, just the idea of, I mean, I was still working for an oil company back then. My gosh, there was such a different brightness in the world. We were in the middle of the Obama administration. Things were hopeful and bright. That was the whole thing. It was hope and prosperity. And so media was lighter. Look, Look back at the shows that you were watching in 2014. And it's like, oh, yeah, we were watching Three and a Half Men. Like, okay, cool. Arrested Development. All right, yeah, there's way crazier stuff going on now. And I think that that nuance of rather than speaking to it being a kid's show, rather than just showing people things that make them happy, now people understand that nuance is an incredibly important important part of life. And it's incredibly important to have the darkness as well. Because if you just gloss over every dark thing that has happened in your life, you have no frame of reference. You have this toxic positivity, which means you are not helpful to others. Yeah, I was thinking about this quote that I heard yesterday um, from one of my mentors. And she said, pain that is not transformed is transmitted, right? Yeah. So when you never acknowledge dark things, you are never able to integrate it into how you see the world and how you respond to things. And so it just gets echoed back out in weird parts of your life that you wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. However, Rebels has a long, slow burn. Mm. And we started with this spark of rebellion. And we are ready to really tell a story. Well, it's also called Star Wars Rebels. Yeah. So we know know what they're up to. We know. (laughs) We've been know. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, I think it's time to pick your favorite rebel of Star Wars Rebels part one and two of season one. Baywatch. (laughs) 
So my inaugural bay for Rebels is going to be the big man himself, Kanan Jarrus. Okay, wait. I also picked Kanan. Nice. Nice. Okay. I love when we do that. So first of all, I love that he has a scheme to get Ezra to read the holocron. I love that he drives up a convertible and stops a convoy of Imperial speeder bikes laughing and shooting. And I love that he says, I'm about to let everyone in on a little secret kid. And he pulls out a lightsaber and everyone, everyone everywhere is like, Oh, dear. Bring me my brown pants. Like, I thought this situation was bad. And now it's a whole line of question marks and exclamation <laughs> marks. Like, just a complete out-of-context problem when a Jedi shows up out of nowhere. Because some of those Wookiees are probably like, I've seen Jedi in action. I saw Master Yoda at the Battle of Kashyyyk chop through, like, a bazillion B-1 battle droids. Oh, Wookiees can be hundreds and hundreds of years old. They have lived through one of the peaks of the Jedi Order. And also, like, Callus, as a ISB agent, is like, okay, I know some stuff. I am more informed than your average stormtrooper. I know about the Inquisitors. I know how to call them. I know that they're looking for Jedi. I also know that I need to call the Inquisitors when a Jedi shows up. So, um, danger. (laughs) I love that scene so much because if this were a comic book, if Uh this were a comic panel, it would have been that moment where everything goes black and white because the Imperial agents are so shocked and horrified and like the mouths open and the eyes open and they're like, ah, yeah, it was great. Yeah. I love Keenan for his young, involved dad energy. <laughs> he, he's he got a ponytail, right? Yeah, he does. He's, he's like this cool hipster, former spoken word poet who met his awesome, super tough, really cool wife. And now they are raising this crew of ragtag miscreants and like putting their fists up and saying power against the empire, power for the rebels. But he's also, Kanan, has this very awake energy. Yeah, I think in media we see so many disconnected dads. And in life, we the older generations that raised you and me, Sam, mm-hmm. were not super present dads. And it's really nice to see this dad figure who – knows what's up and is cool and hip and also is parenting already. Mm-hmm. That is neat. I'm sorry that my daddy issues come out so much with Star Wars again. I mean, we did this in Kenobi every episode, and I'm going to do it again, apparently, in Rebels. Well, that's the whole Star Wars story is that everyone has parent issues. Yeah. So, I Okay. Mean, well, fine. That I'm being canonically accurate. You are, yes. Ho, ho. <laughs> Yeah, I was torn between Hera and Kanan. I wanted it to be Hera, but I, I'm going to vote for Kanan. All right. Well, welcome to Baywatch, Kanan Jarrus. Good work. Yay, Kanan. All right, Sam, what are we watching next week? We're getting into the episodic. uh, We've got two that aren't part of an arc. That's the next two episodes, three and four of season one of Rebels. Droids in distress and fight or flight. Yeah, not fight or flight. Fight or flight, which is somehow way more exciting. Um, Both of these episodes are core memories for me, and they're both quite fun. Aw, yay. So join us next week. As always, you can find us on all of your podcast platforms. Make sure to leave us five-star reviews wherever it's possible to leave reviews. Five stars only. Five stars only. If you want to follow us on social media, we are on all the social media platforms in that crazy firestorm of what is a social media platform this week. We got some 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 moving up and some moving down. Some coming out of nowhere and legal action against others and sometimes the same ones. <laughs> so we'll just call it Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon, and who knows what. Who knows what else. 
If you love Growing Up Skywalker, this is a great time to become one of our monthly members on the Patreon. Every week we we release bonus audio content. We have a lot of fun on the Patreon. We swear and we let our hair down and we talk about leftovers and headcanons and stuff that's usually related to what we're watching, but we also bring in external media like the 2003 Tartakovsky Clone Wars. New this year, monthly memberships of just $3 a month get you access to our entire backlog of two years of content and everything moving forward. So thank you for listening and send this episode to a dad, especially a young hip dad with cool hair. We love them. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.